0: What customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food
1: waste really starts at the farm and then it finishes
0: at the end of a scraped plate.
1: This is the Food & Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry. Bringing you education, information, and inspiration. Only on market scale. Hope you're hungry. Let's dig in.
2: Alright, hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. We have a bunch of awesome stuff coming up on the show for you today. We're going to talk to a senior marketing strategist about online reputations, how you can manage those better. We're also going to talk to a top 10 wine saleswoman from direct sellers. We're going to talk about the sensation of selling wine and the the way that subscription boxes have changed the wine industry and how people buy their wine. All of that is coming up on the show. But before we get to any of that, I'd like to welcome my esteemed colleague, Daniel Litwin, to the studio. Hello, Daniel. Hey.
1: Hello. How are we doing? I'm doing well. How are you today, man? Good. You know, it's uh, it's great when we get to share the studio. We exactly. get to chat a little bit. Um, you know, take it easy on on a great Monday morning. We're not going to be releasing this on a Monday, but just so people know, we're in here on a Monday, and it's probably the best thing to be doing on a Monday morning is podcasting. So
2: exactly, we're in a room. And, we're in a room. Uh, it
1: is full of sound treatment and gear, and that's just a heaven for me. Exactly. <laughs> my heaven
2: looks like a podcast studio. It's where we belong. It's our natural <laughs> habitat. It feels it feels good. But this weekend, you were out and about because it was your birthday weekend, C- it Congratulations. Was. Happy Thank birthday. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was my birthday on Friday the 14th, uh, and it was nice. It was very nice. I got to explore a lot of different local restaurants that I hadn't been to before in yeah. the Dallas area. Um and got to eat some delicious food. Delicious food. Tell me about it. Um, so on Friday, went to Torelli's. Okay. It's an Italian food restaurant in uh, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty downtown. Okay. Um, and it was awesome. I mean, um, luckily there was a two-seater for me and the girlfriend already. Uh, we didn't have to put in a reservation, which was nice. And, you know, it was a little pricier, sure. but that's expected. I mean, they had live Piano mm. and guitar playing Christmas tunes, and it was all decked out in Christmas gear. I had myself a lobster fettuccine. Oh. The lobster came in the tail. So it was like just a tail that had been kind of like cracked open and the meat was outside of it. But it was a full tail and then a beautiful thing of like a white wine base fettuccine. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, so delicious. Um, but I think what I enjoyed more. And not because of the food, but just because of the overall experience was uh, I went to HG Supply Co. Uh On the 15th, um, I went for lunch with my girlfriend's family. And this is something we talked about in our last episode, but we talked about food allergies. Right. And um, talked about some local restaurants that shall not be named, but that I went to and have zero Postings about what has nuts, what doesn't have nuts, yeah, uh, and it bit me in the butt because I ordered two sandwiches that both surprisingly had nuts. It was horrible. Yeah, what I love about HG Supply Co. is that when you sit down, they immediately ask you, "Hey, so before we look over the menu, do you have any dietary restrictions? Right? They're any very any allergies? About that they thing. know, and it's not like it's not even in the way that you might immediately associate." Um, I don't know, like the your classic vegan green restaurant that every, yeah. everything is gluten free and everything is small plates and super conscious like it is that way. But I also ordered like loaded pork nachos, you know, like it's it was a very cool mesh of urban American food that was also very eco conscious and very customer focused. Like they knew that they had an option for everyone. They had the vegan, vegetarian, gluten free, dairy free, nut free option. And when I told her, hey, I'm allergic to all nuts, she said, perfect, I'll let the chefs know in the back so when they're cooking your meals at the table, there won't be any cross contamination. Yeah. And like what a what a great way to just elevate the customer experience. Totally. Totally. And I'm sure for some restaurants that don't have some sort of regulation in place for this or at least guidelines for, hey, when there is someone with allergens, we have to make sure we cook this in separate dishes or whatever. It might seem like a brutal extra step to, um, to slow down the process, but we got our food out pretty quickly. Yeah. So I feel like if you are intentional about making sure that you have something in place f- for uh, your allergens, Making sure that your guests don't keel over and die, <laughs> then <laughs> I think you're in a good place. Um, so that was my birthday weekend. You know, it was yeah. full of good restaurants. Went to some good bars too. Uh, Hyde Bar. I would definitely I recommend love it. Hyde. Yeah, yeah they decked yeah. it out in Christmas lights, and the whole um, menu was Christmas cocktails. Although I, I will say, I ordered um, something called a ginger gingerbread split or mm-hmm. gingerbread flip. That's what it was okay. called and i didn't really read over everything that was in there but it sounded good and so i said hey can i have gingerbread flip And he said sure all right pulls out the thing first thing he does takes a whole egg cracks it puts it in the drink and i was like oh whoa too late to go back now guess i'm drinking a raw egg so yeah. he mixed it in with all the other stuff and i couldn't really even taste it i i did down the drink so it makes it frothy it does make do it frothy yeah. um and it was a little off putting but i guess i guess raw egg is i mean gaston ate 12 dozen eggs and... it's a good point. ...got large, so, I mean, hey, maybe a couple raw eggs in my cocktails won't do me any harm. I saw
2: Rocky Balboa do it in the Rocky <laughs> movies, so Yeah, like, clearly it can't be that bad. No,
1: definitely not. <laughs> all those adverts about, hey, you know, undercooked eggs might lead to
2: salmonella, no. See, I've heard I've heard egg whites being beaten into drinks before. I've, I don't know about a, an entire raw egg. There was a whole egg. Wow. Yolk and all. That's interesting. I really like Hydebar because... They have a, um, an old-fashioned that they will serve just in these little bottles. Did you, have you seen that? Like a medicine bottle? Yeah, pretty much. No,
1: yeah. I, I heard about it, and I was kind of hoping to see it, but I didn't.
2: I have a picture on my phone. It's actually uh, one of my The favorite. best medicine. Yeah, exactly. Alcohol. Exactly. <laughs> just an old-fashioned, just straight up. Uh, and then they have an orange peel uh, that on it they've stamped hide on it. Mm. It's, it's pretty great. That's like in the drink. Oh, man. It's Lovely. Great. It's, a great, it's a great spot. It definitely felt like an aesthetic uh-huh. kind of
1: place. Like they value... The look, the image, the branding right. of not only their establishment, but the presentation of their drinks. Yeah. Which is cool to see, you know, when, when the actual dishes themselves represent the branding of the place. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that's something that HG also, as you were mentioning earlier, gets gets right. They get everything right from the branding all the way to the customer experience. Yeah, uh, They've got the really, really great rooftop view of downtown Dallas oh, uh, yeah. up on top. Uh, they crush it from top to bottom. It's a pretty great spot. Literally top to bottom. <laughs> top floor, <laughs> bottom top. floor. <laughs> from top to bottom. Daniel, are you a wine drinker at all? Um, You know, I,
1: I was. I kind of weaned myself off due to some Fair. bad experiences with wine, but <laughs> I, um, I'm making my way back around definitely. Slowly but surely with the reds first.
2: So my wife and I are members of two different wine clubs and uh, we actually got shipments... From the wine clubs last week, so nice. all of a sudden we were inundated with six more bottles of wine that we did actually didn't have room for. So we're gonna have to like make uh, make haste with drinking some of these right. bottles of hey, wine. Hey, I'll take one off your hands. All right? <laughs> exactly. I don't. I don't think I'm gonna have too much trouble uh, moving some of these bottles. But uh, the way that wine clubs and wine shipments have kind of started to revolutionize the wine industry mm-hmm. is something really interesting. I think it's. I think it's part of the millennial fascination with wine. Millennials have come along and really, really ramped up the wine production and the uh, the consumption of wine. Uh, and wine clubs and memberships are kind of a big part of that. Um, and so we're going to have our first feature today is going to be uh, a conversation with Priscilla Ashley. She's a top 10 wine saleswoman uh, from Direct Sellers, and she's going to talk about how wine subscription boxes are changing the wine industry mm. and how people buy their wine. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation.
1: Definitely. I mean, I know a lot of my millennial friends love to pride themselves as being wine moms, even though they're not moms, but, you know, it's that aesthetic. (laughs) I think we're talking a lot about aesthetics today. It's that whole vibe of just chilling in your bathrobe. Exactly. With your PJs. You've got your wine. You've got your episode of Friends on. Precisely. That is is an aesthetic that millennials love to dig into. So I could see this being an interesting conversation. Let's dig in.
2: Yeah, I'm excited about that. And then also for our second feature today, how did you decide where you were going to go for your birthday uh, celebrations, all the different restaurants, bars, and that sort of thing. Did you do an online search? Did you go check on Yelp, Google, any of those places? Did you ask friends for recommendations?
1: Yeah, I got some friend recommendations. That's where I started. But then I obviously went to Google and searched it up, gave uh, gave it a look on their website. They had links to like their Instagrams and stuff. So I got to see some of the different food options they carried. But um, yeah, it was important to get a feel for what am I stepping into? Uh, how should I dress right So obviously yeah, a Google search goes a long way.
2: A Google search goes a long way. So we're going to talk to David Rev Ciencio about that. He's a senior marketing strategist. that's going to be in the second feature coming up on today's show. But first, katie gerlitz our correspondent is coming up next with a conversation with priscilla ashley she's a top 10 wine saleswoman from direct sellers to talk to us about how wine subscription boxes are changing the wine industry and how people buy their wine i think it's going to be a fascinating conversation and just looking at how a new generation is really driving this industry so that's coming up next on the market scale food and beverage podcast
0: I'm your host, Kaylee Gerlitz, and you're in for a good time, all about wine. Today, we'll be talking all about how millennials and Gen Xers are driving a new golden age for wine. Joining us to talk about all things wine is Priscilla Ashley from Direct Sellers. Thanks for coming on, Priscilla.
3: You are very welcome. I'm excited to be here.
0: So can you just tell me a little bit about your business and what you do with Direct Sellers?
3: Uh, direct sellers is it's spelled sellers like wine sellers, and they are a DTC or direct to consumer company, and we offer wines from all over the world in countries like Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, Australia, and many more. And the company was actually started in 2014, and they were an online monthly wine membership club. And then in 2017, we officially launched the opportunity side. And what does that mean? That means that anybody can make an income from home with this company. And I'm actually one of the founding members with Direct Sellers. I've been in online marketing since 2010, and I started with Direct Sellers in November of 2016. And being one of their top 10 income earners, I've actually helped launch the company from 10,000 reps to 30,000 plus in two years' time.
0: So can you talk to me a little bit about the wine subscription boxes and how it's changing the landscape of purchasing wine?
3: Monthly wine subscriptions, just they really make sense, especially for someone like me who is a busy stay-at-home mom. I love having my wine delivered to my door each month. It's just, it's super convenient. You know, I don't have to go to the grocery store and stare at the hundreds of different bottles of wine and hope that I'll get a good one. With Direct sellers, we have experts choosing the wines for you each month. So they take all the guesswork out of it for us. And I love this part of it too. You don't have to be an expert In every single box, you will receive tasting notes that describe the wine, like where it came from, the type of grapes, um, info on the winery, and of course, the best pairings to have it in terms of food. And I just think that people out there are enjoying wine subscription clubs because of that. I mean, it's, it's just super convenient in this busy, crazy world that we live in now.
0: And who are your main customers that kind of subscribe to these wine boxes with direct sellers? Do you have a certain kind of clientele or demographic?
3: Um, I have a lot of a lot of my following is stay at home moms, nurses and teachers. But for sure, the younger generation are coming on board with us now because they're seeing how a wine business can make a difference in their life. You know, earning an income and or getting their wine for free. It's kind of a no brainer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the whole wine subscription box is really cool for young people because, you know, at 22 years old, I'm not very well versed other than what my parents tell me. So it gives you a lot of opportunity to try new kinds of wines. So according to the magazine Wine Access, millennials and Gen Xers are driving a new golden age for wine with our adventurous attitudes and choosing to spend money on experiences rather than material items, they're spending more money on wine annually than any other age group. Why do you think that is?
3: Well, I honestly think that's because these days so many millennials and Gen Xers have gone to college. They've gotten their degrees, so they have extra money now, right? they they have extra money to spend on a nice bottle of wine. They're not going to worry about, you know, if they're going out to dinner and they drop 50 or 100 bucks on a bottle of wine. They have the money now. Plus, wine is sexy and fun. And isn't that what our younger generation is looking for? Uh, one thing I love too is I, I see lots of posts on social media of people um, traveling, they're enjoying a glass of wine, and they're sharing about what they love about that particular wine. I think millennials are more open these days to expanding their palates and trying new things. And you know, Kaylee, wine has been around since before Jesus walked the earth, and I don't think it's going anywhere soon. It's here to stay. <laughs>
0: I love that. I'm definitely a big wine girl myself. How do you think wine clubs specifically and membership programs have helped drive this wine obsession?
3: Oh, well, I'm going to be honest, like even before I was in direct sellers, like we, my husband and I really weren't involved in any wine membership clubs, you know, but of course now I've been in it for two years and we love it. We love the fact that it's just simple and we don't really have to second guess anything. It just comes to my door. I think people are loving having wine delivered to their door too, because it's convenient for all involved.
0: And what do you think is like the best part about being a wine club member now and being in this industry?
3: I think for us, it's the fact that, uh, well, at least for my company, one thing I love is that if you um, go and open a bottle of wine from us, if you're not in love with it you can actually contact customer service and they will send you two new bottles to replace it no questions asked If I were to do that with a different wine club or even at the grocery store they're not gonna they're not gonna you know replace the bottle of wine that I got they're gonna be like well sorry you know you dropped whatever 25 30 bucks on a bottle of wine that's too bad right but with us, We don't have to worry about that. We're actually enjoying wine here and we're earning an income, which is always fun.
0: And can you tell me a little bit about how you order a wine subscription box through direct sellers and the kind of options you have? Is it just random wines or is there a certain type they bring you?
3: Okay, so um, obviously I have a website, it's uh, wineboss.biz, and you would just go there, you click on either join or, um, or wine, you can choose to become a customer or a brand partner, which is someone who can make money. And yeah, our wines are actually handpicked by experts, and you can choose all red, all white, or half and half. So it's kind of a surprise every month, and it's actually kind of fun. My husband and I love coming home and and seeing that we have a box of direct sellers wine there because we get to open it and see what we got. It's just like Christmas every month.
0: And where do you see the future of wine subscription boxes and just the wine industry in general going?
3: Gosh, I, I don't think it's going anywhere but up from here. I mean... You know, I never thought that I would be involved in a in a wine business. Like if you would have told me that like three years ago, I would have laughed at you. I would have been like, oh, no, I'm the fitness girl. I'm not going to be into wine. Right. But wine has been on the upswing for the past few years, and it looks like it's going to continue to rise for years to come.
0: Why do you think there is this uprise in, you know, enjoying wine and all of that?
3: I don't know. It's... It, There's, there's some sort of excited feeling that you get when you're like going to go hang out with your girlfriends and grab a glass of wine. And I don't think that feeling is going to go away anytime soon. I'm sure you, you get that too. When you go out with your friends, it's the same feeling. It's like, Oh my gosh, we're just going to go hang out, have a glass of wine or two and just enjoy each other's company.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wine definitely brings people together and it's a community. And with this extreme growth in wine and wine production, do you think producers are worried that the market's going to reach a saturation point at any time?
3: I don't think so. I don't really think that wine can reach a saturated type market. Um, It's not like a fitness or skincare market. Wine is a $300 billion a year industry across the world. So yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere.
0: Okay, cool. And I think that wraps up all of my questions. Thanks Priscilla for coming on and thank you everyone for listening to today's food and beverage podcast.
3: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. If
0: you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles and video content from your favorite industries. Make sure to leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Kaylee Gerlitz, and I think it's about time to crack open a bottle of wine.
2: All right, thank you to Priscilla Ashley for that insight, and to Katie Gurlitz, our correspondent, for conducting that interview. That was a really interesting look at the wine industry, how millennials and Gen Xers are really starting to drive and innovate that industry. Coming up next is my conversation with David Rev Ciancio, a really awesome guy. Uh, He's a senior marketing strategist, brand manager, and expert burger taster. He's gonna join us to talk about how reputation management online can matter so much to restaurants these days. He's also gonna talk about why digital marketing is so important and talk about how you can manage your online presence. Now, so much of how people perceive uh, restaurants these days is simply what their online presence looks like. So what are their reviews on Yelp? What are people posting about them on Instagram? It's going to talk about how we can manage that a little bit better and how restaurants can do their best job to be recognized online. So that is coming up next. It's my conversation with David Rev Ciancio. David, thanks so much for joining the podcast today, man.
4: thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: I'm excited to talk to you because I think you're my first uh, burger tester that I've ever uh, expert burger <laughs> tester, I should say that we've ever had on the podcast. I gotta know how do you how does one attain the level of expert burger taster? <laughs> uh,
4: how do you get the title and how you attain it are two different things. Uh, so I've eaten you know thousands of thousands of hamburgers in my life, uh, and I used to write one of the world's top three hamburger blogs. Uh, just sort of as a goof and and if you go follow me on social media I post a lot of pictures of hamburgers so uh, I guess over time you develop an expert quote, taste ability to taste them and, and test them uh, but I was on a show on uh, the travel channel called Burgerland that's hosted by my friend George Motz who in in my mind is the world's foremost expert on burgers. And uh, when they went to give me the, the title Chiron, they just put Rev Ciencio, Expert Burger Taster. And people <laughs> saw it and uh, it got some SEO clicks. And now if you Google Expert Burger Taster, you'll find me. So just sort of happened. <laughs> Man, that's
2: something to uh, aspire to in my career at some point. You know, is, is attain the title of expert burger taster. I'd like to get there. Yeah, um, my, my next
4: conquest. I'd like to know that if you could search French fry historian, I would be the number one search. But that's going to take a little more SEO juice to get going.
2: Well, that's why you're here. You know, we can uh, we can put that out into the world a little bit more. Uh, foremost French fry historian Rev Ciancio joining the podcast today.
4: <laughs> this will be a very different show. <laughs>
2: Well, we, we are talking about reputation today on the, on the podcast, and that's kind of a little bit of, uh, of what we're talking about already. But uh, we're talking about reputations as it comes to uh, the hospitality industry and businesses, so restaurants and hotels and that sort of thing. So uh, kind of in your line of work... With what you've done as a strategist, as a brand manager, Re- managing reputations is kind of a, a big aspect of that. What are some of the impacts of uh, of managing reputations for you know restaurants and hotels and that sort of
4: thing? Sure, it's a great conversation. I think a lot of people, especially today, when you say reputation management, they think about like some high class level expensive PR person making sure that you know if you accidentally hit a police officer in the face, like you're not going to get you know lambasted on social. Uh, and I guess that is a form of reputation management. <laughs> But what we're talking about here in the hospitality business is essentially third-party reviews. So uh, a third-party review is a review that lives on somebody else's website, so like a Yelp or a Facebook or a Google or you know OpenTable, TripAdvisor, somewhere where somebody, a customer, can go and publicly share their mind. Uh, And most people and and restaurant owners, you know, from McDonald's down to the the pizza shop around the corner from my house, which by the way, is fantastic. (laughs) uh, They don't understand the hidden secrets of reputation management, right? So sure, everybody understands great customer service, right? You walk through the door, you have a nice experience. They say, thank you. You're like, oh, I wanna go eat there again, right? We all get that. Uh, And anybody that doesn't get that either has built their name on being really mean and it's one of those places, or they're going on their way to being out of business. Well, there's a couple of hidden secrets to reputation management that most hospitality leaders and owners don't realize, and there's a massive, massive SEO benefit. So in April of 2016, Google came out and said, look, we're gonna tell you exactly how local search works. It's based on three factors, right? Prominence, distance, and relevance. Uh, the prominence piece is the keyword of the search. So if I go best tacos near me, I'm looking for tacos, right? Google's gonna go find a result for tacos, mm-hmm. right? The next piece distance is obvious, so if I do near me, I'm looking near me, If I say, you know, Austin, Texas, I'm looking at Austin, Texas, whatever, and it's that last piece relevance that Google came out in 2016 and said, this is how we're going to index search answers for local businesses and the rest of the internet followed. Now relevance in terms of how Google sees it is they're literally ranking businesses against each other in search. Based on their reputation management. So, what does that mean? It means ratings and reviews. And it doesn't just mean your number on Google, it means your number in aggregate. So, what is your number on Facebook? What is your number on Google? What is your number on Yahoo? Or, you know, wherever a review can live. And it also looks at a system that is about recency. Now, they haven't told anybody what that distance of time is, but I'm gonna break this down to a much simpler explanation. Tyler, if we're staying in the middle of the street, and you tell me, Rev, I want tacos, mm-hmm. and I do best tacos near me, and there's a taco shop on our left, and there's a taco shop on our right, right? Let's say they're almost the same. Same prices, same menu items. They both have like a, you know, a, a 4.1 star. They're, they're online. They're essentially the same. We can't tell the difference. Okay. Whichever one got the most recent highest rating review is more likely to come up in that search. So if the taco shop on the left got a five-star review yesterday, and the one on the right hasn't had a positive review in a month, the one on the left will come up first in search. So most businesses and most restaurants don't realize that. that There's that hidden hidden gem to being found online to reputation management. And that's not it. I know I'm getting long-winded here, but this is like a subject I'm incredibly passionate about and I know can make a difference, right? The other thing is, Reputation management and ratings and reviews, by responding to them, you will automatically increase your rating, right? And I, I think it was Yext uh, said that 0.1%, or sorry, sorry, 10% of, uh, if you, sorry, if you reply to your ratings reviews, you'll see a 10% lift in your star rating, right? Just by replying, because other customers see it, and other customers think, oh, this person cares, this restaurant cares, That they'll reply to me, they have good customer service, right? But it also informs the customer journey right? So let's say you and I are standing in the middle of the street and we Google best tacos near me and we look at that one place, right? And on every single one says, oh, the owner, you know, owner John was awesome, came to our table and told us this, and the tacos were just like they had in it. I had it when I was in Mexico, blah, blah, blah. Like right. we feel pretty positive, right? It has informed that, oh, that is the experience we were looking for. We were looking for authentic tacos. We were looking for great customer service. Mm-hmm. You know, we were looking for a reward system, whatever. So having the owner or somebody in the business respond to reviews also helps inform the customer journey so that they know what they're going to get from an experience when they come to your restaurant.
2: So how can restaurants drive people towards reviewing their restaurant uh, online? Is, is is that something that they are able to uh, able to do? Because I think of when I've left reviews, it's either been because I've had a really really bad experience, uh, or just an unbelievably awesome experience. But if I go and just have a a really good like, oh hey, that was a good meal, I, I don't normally feel compelled to leave a review. Is there a way that restaurants can
4: kind of push me in that direction? So Tyler, you're like most of us. Uh, most people are only incentivized from a personal. Base basis to go positive or negative. However, and you'll have to go look at the stat, it's something like 60% or 65% plus of all reviews online are four or higher, right? Most people are more motivated to say something really nice than to say something really mean. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're kind of already in the positive game. But if the question is, how do restaurants get more positive reviews, or even just reviews in general, we have to be careful. Uh, if you go and look in the terms and conditions, especially on Yelp, and I believe a little bit Google, right? you are not allowed to incentivize or ask for reviews. So you can't say, hey Tyler, will you leave me a five-star review? That is against the terms and conditions for those sites, right? So sort of the, the best practice rules because you kind of want to let customers know they're important, right? You want to kind of get them into that mindset of like, hey, tell me something nice about my business online. So here's a couple of things you can do. Number one, you should reply to almost all of your reviews. If I'm inclined to leave a review and I see that the owner of the business or a representative of the business is leaving reviews, I'm more inclined to leave one because I think somebody's going to see it or I might get a reply. So that's number one. Reply to as many reviews as you can. Number two, you can send signals to your, your customers through social media. So you can say on your Facebook page, hey, we really like reviews, right? You can go on Twitter and share, hey, look what Tyler said about my taco shop on Yelp. Right? So you're not saying give me review on Yelp. You're not saying write a review on my Facebook page. You're telling your customers that reviews matter to you. You're telling your customers that their opinion is important and you're gonna go read it, right? So there's those little signals that you can send. You can also go create graphics and share all of your positive reviews. Like, hey, we're up to four points uh, rating system on TripAdvisor. Thanks so much everybody who follows us here. You can sort of get them into it. You can also do things like put stickers in your window that says, hey, we're on Yelp, or you can put it in your menu or you can have your servers when they do a table touch, like, hey, did you guys have a great time? Cool, we love reviews. So you can't say review us on Yelp. You can't say give us a five-star rating. You can't say recommend us on Facebook, but you can say these things are important to me through a, a number of different signals you can send to your customers. Now there's, a little, there's one other thing you can do. There's a different kind of review called First Party. Tyler, do you know what that is? I do not. Okay, so we talked earlier about third party reviews, which are reviews that live on websites that are not yours, right? Mm -hmm. There's another type of review called first party review. And now this is when you basically operate a review channel on your own website. So a customer comes to your website and they leave you a review just as if they were on TripAdvisor, just as if they were on Facebook. Star rating, comment, the whole nine yards, right? You have to use a piece of technology to do this. You can't just like have them email you and post it. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and there's a number of options out there, but once you do that, right? The, re- the there's two benefits. So number one, customers will, when once they've made it to your website, they're kind of about to be ready to become your customer anyway. Like they've you're, they're down the sales funnel, so to speak. It gives them that last piece of uh, a last signal of confidence to yeah, they're gonna have the experience they want. But also, Google will reward a business by adding a star rating to the results in search. So if you ever Google a restaurant and you see the star rating actually come up underneath the uh, organic link results, Mm -hmm. right? That's Google rewarding a business for having first party search results. And those businesses get something like 300% more clicks than organic search results without the stars. So the last thing you can do in that game, if you are doing first party reviews, you can absolutely ask, there's no rules. Hey, the only rule is that you have to operate Genuinely, right? You can't like suppress a negative view. You have to send them all out there. But those tools that you can get, you can say, "Hey, review my business. Send me your positive thoughts," and you can quarantine them, and you can reply to them, and you can try to fix the problem before it goes live.
2: It's really fascinating. We're talking a lot about uh, how you know how businesses are able to be found on Google, but. Uh, nowadays, just in the last 15 years with social media, uh, so much has changed about how restaurants can market themselves and, and sh- display their brands out there on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram. Where all do restaurants need to be, and not just restaurants, anybody in the in the hospitality industry? Where you know what are all the sites that they need to be on? Where all do they need to be uh, to make sure that they're as visible as possible
4: in today's environment? Well, we certainly don't have time on this show to list all of them, but I can give you some <laughs> I can give you some good leader clues here. Yeah. So. Before social media, before you start a Twitter account, before you start posting to Facebook, before you're on Instagram daily, I would tell that is every restaurant out there it is vital that they manage all the public facts about their business everywhere they live online. So what do I, I mean when I say public facts? Some people call it digital knowledge, but it's essentially anything that somebody could search about your business, name, address, phone number, hours of operation, which credit cards do you take, do you have handicap accessible bathrooms, What's on your menu? And any of those facts that I'm going to go into Alexa and ask her to say, hey, best taco near me with Wi-Fi that's kid-friendly, right? Mm -hmm. Any of those facts. Take, make sure that you are managing all that information everywhere it lives online, not just Google, right? You gotta do it on Yelp, and TripAdvisor, and Facebook, and Bing, and City Search and all the long tail publishers. There's hundreds of them. Uh, and there's software you can go get out there that will help you do that. But I would say that number one is make sure your information is correct, because people need information. Even if I see a post on Instagram where somebody's doing a massive pizza pull and the cheese is stretched across the entire photo and I need to have that pizza in my mouth right now, and that's how I discovered your restaurant, I still need directions. I still need to know what time you're open. I still need to know if you do delivery. I like, I still have need of all that information. right? So you wanna prevent a leaky budget by making sure that all your information is correct. So step one update your the public facts about your brand everywhere they live online. Number two, what is the best way, what are the best social media sites for uh, you know promoting a restaurant? I would tell you there's really only two essential ones and that's Facebook and that's Instagram. And you have to look at them a little differently. To me, because Facebook it's so hard to get an organic post in front of your audience, mm-hmm. I look at Facebook pages as being a club membership. I like your business enough to say, I like you on Facebook, right? Make that a customer service channel. Share customer experiences, give special deals, give me a reason to interact. I don't just need to see the same thing you're posting in other places. Make it a, you know, it don't it doesn't have to be a closed group, but treat it as though it is a membership society. This is a customer service channel for rewarding the customers that like me the most, right? And then Instagram. Instagram is a great tool for discovery and that is where I would tie in doing some influencer marketing, right? How do I get exposure? So I would use fit Instagram a little bit as my, my baited hook and I would use uh, Facebook a little bit as my fish store. You know, here's how I connect people and here's how I get them in. That's really interesting, just
2: the, the, the difference between the two. Because you're right, Facebook um, can, can tend to be more difficult as far as, as getting it in front of people. But Instagram, there's, there's that, that picture-type hook that you can really yeah, get out there and get in front of folks. Uh, that's, that's really, really interesting to me. As you look into the future, what are some ways that you think people can continue to innovate in this area uh, to make sure that they are on the forefront of, uh, of being ahead of the trends when it comes to, to uh, digital marketing? and that sort of thing.
4: It's a great question. Well, you're gonna get a lot of people that say, "Oh, you know, this is a mobile-first society, and you got to be mobile ready," and blah blah blah. We are so past that, right? <laughs> if you're not, mo- if you're not mobile, if your business isn't on mobile or mobile friendly, like you've already lost that game, and I'm not sure you- you're-, you're primed to catch up. But to me, it's about voice search readiness and voice search preparedness. Mm. You know, I think we've probably all seen that ComScore stat that says you know, 50% of searches by 2020 will be voice. Uh, I also read a stat the other day that says one of one out of people that use voice search to find restaurants go within a day, right? So if, if you use Siri or you use Alexa or you use Google Home to search for restaurants, right? There's a 25% chance that you're going to go to that restaurant that you get in result. Wow. That's only going to go up. Like that's not going to go down. That's going to go up as, as natural language processing happens and people get more and more comfortable talking to Alexa. You know, like think about what a search online was like five years ago best taco near me, like we would choose a result, right? Mm -hmm. But we're at the point now where like, hey, Alexa, uh, best taco near me has Wi-Fi available parking and I can take my kids on a Sunday without them screaming at me. Like (laughs) that's where we're going, right? So, you know, my advice to a restaurant or or somebody operating a hospitality business is get voice search ready now. Like get if you really want to be ahead of your competition, like people are already using this and the adoption, if you go look at the numbers, is faster than the mobile phone. Right? We were, customers are ready for this. And the more they talk to these devices, the more natural it's gonna become, like that example I just gave. And the best way to do that is, going back to what I said, manage those public facts, manage your digital knowledge, because Alexa has to get her information from somewhere. right? Google gets her information from somewhere, Siri, Cortana, all these places. And as more chatbots and more AI-powered services come online, You know, like whether it's a, you know, a smart car or a smart hovercraft, if we get to that, or drones, like they need that same information. So, you know, I think being prepared for what's coming is about, you know, managing those public facts about your brand.
2: That is excellent information. That is David Rev Ciancio. He's a senior marketing strategist, brand manager, expert burger taster, and leading French fry historian. (laughs) Rev, thank you so much for joining the podcast today, man.
4: Awesome! Hey, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for being on it. I don't know if you're going to link up my social in the post here, but I'm on I'm Rev C N on every platform. If you anybody has questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm happy to answer and, and talk to people.
2: And you have a website too, is that correct?
4: Uh, Burgerconquest.com.
2: Burgerconquest.com. I wouldn't have expected anything less. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. Thanks, Rev. <laughs> All right, thank you so much to Priscilla Ashley and to David Ciancio for joining me for today's episode. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for, so you're going to have to wait another week until another food and beverage podcast comes out. But until then, if you enjoyed this content, please feel free to head over to marketscale.com, where we have a bunch more content just like this lots of written content, more podcasts for your listening ears, uh, anything that you could want in the food and beverage industry, you can find it there at marketscale.com. Please feel free to share this episode with your friends, relatives, neighbors, other people people in the industry. I don't know. Anybody that you think might enjoy this content, we'd appreciate it if you shared this with them as well. Thank you again for listening. I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Until next week.